Hello and welcome to Arena Craft, a podcast dedicated to Magic the Gathering Arena. My name is Arjuna, I am your host. This week we're going to be talking about some more standard meta game with one of our favorite returning guests, so I'm excited about that. And before we get into that, just want to remind you that this is the end of the month, and so your last chance to enter into our drawing for a $20 giveaway. And so the way that you earn this gift card and or other $20 prize is by following us on Twitter or on YouTube, or you can follow on Twitch. You can leave a review on iTunes. Those are my favorite. I count those extra heavily. You can also join the Discord and like our Facebook page. So Anyone in any of those categories is eligible to receive the prize. And again, we're going to be announcing that at the beginning of next month. So get on that and win yourself an easy prize. You can, as always, find links to us on all of those places in the show notes. So without further ado, let's get into our guest segment. This one, my friends, is going to be a doozy. In a world overrun by companions and mutant beasts. In a metagame that had lost all hope, one planeswalker emerged to bring the fight back to Ikoria. One man had the nerve, the audacity, the chutzpah to take the yak by the horns and change standard forever. This summer, Covert Go Blue stars as the unnamed planeswalker in When the Sword is Lit, We Are Legit. Wow. Just, just, wow. You like I don't that? know what the heck that just was. <laughs> I have no idea what I just heard. That is insane. That, that's just like a little gem that I've been sitting on here. You've outdone yourself. <laughs> I, I try. Well, you know, last time was an outdoing of the original one, and I just, I needed to up the ante. You know what I mean? The ante is up. Um, there, the pressure is on. I feel like I probably should have been training a lot harder for this moment to live up to this, but you know what? I ain't going to crack. We're going to do this. We got this. This is a mom spaghetti moment, if ever I've heard one. Time for a montage, my friends. I think, I think this is going to be the montage episode. And, you know, actually, I think that's kind of appropriate because, like, when I look at Standard right now, 
It is like montages. It's like when someone says the Loris deck. No, it's not the Loris deck. It's like the Loris montage. You know what I mean? It's like here are the fifteen decks that people play Loris with. Here are the seven decks that people play Yorion with. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's it's kind of appropriate actually for our for our discussion here today. It absolutely is. It's kind of amazing how they made a set that could somehow take almost any deck, and now you have to adjust it in creative ways to make use of this insane new mechanic that they printed. Um, And it's causing some excitement, and it's causing some headaches, and it's, it's certainly stirring up magic, that's for sure. We all have something unique to either enjoy or complain about while staying home at it, during these interesting times. Indeed, yeah. Interesting times just got interestinger. So uh, let's just briefly talk about this before we jump in. And just to let you guys know that the main beef of this episode is going to be just CGB and I discussing the week one meta. I guess we're a little further than week one by now. But like, just just kind of digesting what's happened in the standard matter so far with Ikoria. But before we go into that, let's just, you know, a little matter discussion, matter matter discussion, if you will. Like, how are people reacting to this stuff? CGB, you were telling me that you've been getting a number of, shall we say, disparaging comments in your videos related to this set. So what's going on there? So when a new set comes out, I get really excited about a number of the flashy cards, mechanics, combos, things like that. And I think a lot of people do, and I'm always pretty quick to show them off. And it's it's been amazing to me that some of the more explosive things in this format, in this set particularly, they seem to be a big turnoff to people, which really surprised me. I'll use Gyruda as the first example. And the very first video I made playing Gyruda, I turned for... Cast, on the play, cast my 6-6, six, six, and then Spark doubled it twice, and got an Endraise Forerunners as well. So, <laughs> That's uh, 33 power added to the battlefield, and my opponent hadn't hit their fourth land drop yet. I think they were on Mono Red, and they had like a Robber of the Rich and a Scorch Spitter. And and I, I was pretty excited about this. I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be very fun. And the video had a few more moments like that. Taste and, that, Embercleave. Yeah, <laughs> <all right>? yeah. <laughs> I was very excited. Um, <laughs> a lot of comments were saying that, and, and I wasn't prepared for it, but quite a wave of comments just like, this is just luck. This is just random. This isn't the game I want to play. This is insane. This is broken. This shouldn't have, like, do they even test this format at all? Companion is busted, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how I knew that's how I knew it. That's, that is how I really knew I had made it. That's how I knew the video was going to get a ton of reach, because people who just normally don't even share my views of the game, which is kind of finding all these different and exciting interactions, and just want to get really mad at it, were uh, watching as well. <laughs> but that it has become, like the comment section has been a bit negative about Gyruda, Winota, uh, Cat Oven. Like these these things have become targets a lot of people saying they don't want to play magic in this format a lot of people saying that this is not the magic that they're used to which is interesting um so on its own usually especially that early in a format i find that a little 
tough to hear all the time, but I also know it comes with the territory. What do you think has people so stirred up? I mean, it, it is safe to say that there's just more going on in this set than, I mean, any set that I can remember, right? I, I wasn't playing during like all of these kind of historically busted sets that people complain about. So, you know, but for me and, and concerning my tenure with the game and the, the time periods during which I've been playing, I have not seen any shakeup quite like this set. I, I mean, I feel like they just made it their mission to change magic with this set. They were like, cool, like we're going to start playing Commander in every format. We're going to, you know, we're going to release one of the most complicated keyword mechanics we've ever released. And we're going to reintroduce cycling as well, which is just like a super... So it's just like, I feel like every, all of this new stuff that they have, have thrown in is just among the more kind of busted, over-the-top, skill-testing, rip-your-face-off kind of magic. And yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's understandable that people are going to be pretty shaken up about it. Now, I think that some of the, some of the saber rattling, some of the like rouse the mob-ing, which is happening, seems like a little bit overreactive to me. I think especially for standard, like I can understand someone who plays vintage looking at Loris and just being like, oh, here we go. Now I'm just going to have to deal with this until it gets banned or whatever. And that's totally legit. So I, I wouldn't begrudge anyone who plays in some of the older formats being preemptively over it. But I don't know. As far as standard goes so far, I, have, I haven't been feeling like any particular commander is unbeatable or I'm going to stop playing Magic just because someone Garuda comboed me. I mean, I don't know. Like, I've died on turn three to Embercleave. And, and so that's a combo too. And like, I kept playing Magic. And so it's not like that has, has never happened before in the history of the game. So yeah, that, that's kind of my hot take right off the top. Yeah, you know, things are kind of wild right now. And maybe Akoria did jump the shark, <laughs> so to speak. But I, I'm enjoying my games. I don't, like, are you having fun playing this format? I'm having a blast. I have so many things I want to play. I think that part of that is a little bit of ladder distance. Because if I'm not concerned about whether or not I'm going to play the same decks and same experiences over and over on ladder, I don't feel as connected mm, to right. having to be the best or having to find what is the best. But even there, like I'm following the meta, I'm paying attention to everything that's going on, and it's actually moving like a predictable meta, in my opinion. So I don't feel like anything is... I don't think like anything's broken the standard meta. It is amazing that they managed to make a set, and this is not... This is like two sets after Oko and Once Upon a Time. Oko and Once Upon a Time slowly, carefully crept their way into every format of Magic and got banned, restricted, and, you know, the treatment. They got the treatment in all the formats eventually. It feels like this set actually turned every format and almost every deck in every format on its head overnight, which is absurd. Absolutely absurd. Because Magic is such a wide, diverse game, and it's full of spots you might call safe spaces, right? Like if you hate standard, you but you have a really old collection and you like legacy, most of the things printed in standard aren't going to mess up your legacy deck, right? Well, 
Uh, no safe space Not from anymore. Companion except for <laughs> the pauper gamers are laughing at all of us, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> you won't be laughing when they print Companions at Uncommon, okay, pauper? <laughs> oh, no, that's Artisan. When they, we'll need a common companion for the, there you for, go. For the popper to get twisted. <laughs> you know, it is funny, though, because it makes me wonder, like, a lot of people have been complaining, kind of like, keep your hands off my commander, right? Because commander was kind of like the safe space for people to just pl- play these janky random cards from their collection that weren't seeing play in other formats. And I think that was a specific draw of a format like commander. And so... A lot of people are actually not super pleased to see all of these commander sets being printed because they're kind of just pushing commander towards any other constructed format where like you need to have X, Y, and Z cards and you need to have the power level stuff. And if you don't, you're just not keeping up. And it does make me wonder like if, if we're actually going to start seeing some formats like Popper or like Artisan start to become more popular just because people are like, F this, I don't, you know, like I don't want to have to keep up with this stupid arms race or I don't want to have to, you know, change my whole collection every time a new set comes out. So I definitely think that there's something to that. It's definitely like no matter which way you look at it, there's stuff popping off and things are happening and it's definitely you know i can see why any given magic player might feel a little uneasy yes uh, companion is such a change to the game i this is a genie that may never go back in the bottle and i think that's also something that a lot of people like it's not going to rotate away Mm. it yeah Mm -hmm. this is going to be a part of everything for a long time i wonder like Supposing they never print companions again, do you think that we're eventually going to just kind of get over it? Or do you think that magic has just irreversibly changed? I think if they, they would have to ban some things. And vintage is, vintage is done because they only restrict things there, right? Yeah, yeah they, they have no way out. <laughs> And, you know, here's a newsflash as well. You only need one commander in your collection, you know? I mean, one companion in your collection, you know? <laughs> it's like, restrict this, right? So some of them aren't busted, but there's at least there's at least two or three that they would... It feels like they'd have to ban them in older formats to save those formats, and I don't know if they want to. I There is... I don't know... Maybe you guys are hearing it for the first time, but Hasbro's a toy company, right? So in a different world where this didn't happen, social distancing wasn't the thing, uh, COVID-19 wasn't a problem, would we have seen, we, we know we would have seen a marketing push with the new Godzilla movie, which got delayed, but would we see a marketing push involving, here's your companion, buy your plushy Luris, oh, take it with you, you to the tournament, right? Yeah, um, yeah, get your Karuga toy dinosaur that you hang out with right this is it's all part of a a bigger thing now which i think some people are never going to be okay with but most of us know that's how it works so i i just wonder how much is really behind this and what like this is what they want magic to be i think and i think it i think it serves a purpose uh, to just quickly soapbox, I, I, I've been trying to tell people, it's like, I think this is what they want. I think they want magic to be kind of more explosive, more flashier. They want epic things that catch people's attention. If we were playing magic from two, from like the year 2000, 
trying to ink out a little bit of card advantage, you know, over the course of like seven turns, right? Is that going to get a young person today's attention? Yeah. No, you're right, because magic for years has been like poker, right? It's been like this this game of edges, this game of like little, exactly like you said, incremental advantages, a game of grinding your opponent out, that kind of thing. And it does seem like, you know, like these days it's like card advantage. What what even is card advantage anymore, right? What card isn't getting you an advantage in, in a modern game of magic, right? And so it, it does seem like, it's just there's a different metrics that we're needing to measure now for the success or the power level of any given magic card or magic format. Like as an example, I was just watching uh, one of my favorite streamers, the Asian Avenger, the other night playing against Team Reclamation deck. And Krim, over the course of this game, like a good magic player, just manages to run his opponent out of cards. Well done. And But the opponent happens to have a, a wilderness reclamation in play and happens to get a spectral sailor down. And all of a sudden, they've just got 10 cards in their hand again. And it's just like, okay, that kind of stuff can happen in any magic format. But I just kind of, I feel like that's what games look like these days, even in standard. Like another example, your fire's opponent gets you to one, right? And you're playing some Simic something. And like next thing you know, you're back up to 18 life. And I just feel like that kind of stuff didn't used to happen as much in Magic. Or you had to work hard for it. Or your deck had to really, really be built around these certain axes to get you there. And nowadays it's like, you gain life, you gain life, you win a card, you affect the board. You know, I feel like I'm in an Oprah show or something. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, you're right. You're right. Um, The cards are explosive and they're difficult to stop. You can't stop a hydroid crisis trigger with a traditional counterspell. I feel like that card really started that snowball of you can't just counter everything anymore and expect to win on this grindy axis. But yeah, I think that and and I think that that is what they want. I think they want large explosive plays that are, excite people because no matter how much you complain about it, a Winota who triggers four times and picks up three agents of treachery stealing your stuff is really fun and exciting for the person who gets to do it. Like they're going to hit, they're not going to log off. You know, they're not going to finish that game and be like, well, magic's okay and walk away you know and go find something else to do they're gonna hit play again they want to do that again well how about that poor opponent though (laughs) that opponent (laughs) well what what are they going to do are they going to adapt and try to figure out how to interact with that kind of card are they going to brew that deck themselves are they going to feel like well if i had winota i would be having fun so i'm going to buy some packs right yeah yeah or are they going to uninstall and quit forever like magic players threaten to do (laughs) Yeah, and I wonder how many of them actually do as well. You know, it's like I have days where I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of tired of that. I'm going to log off, right? But, but you know, I, I keep coming back. I mean, the game is still fun. It's still sweet. It's still the best competitive card game out there, in my opinion. And so maybe, you know, maybe I'm just an entrenched player and I'm not, you know, I'm not one of these more casual players. And there's a standard format that people seem to keep coming back to a lot because there's a lot going on in standard right now with this new set busted as some people say it is there's a lot of different decks and there's a lot of strategies and i'm glad that you brought us around to that so let's dive in here and start taking a look at some of what's happening 
Now, because of these companions, I think it's safe to say that, okay, like what percentage of the standard matter would you say are decks which actually start with a companion in the exile zone ready to be played? Like, is it, is it 60%? Is it 70%? What, what are you thinking about that? If my opponent doesn't reveal a companion to me, I only predict two things, mono red or team reclamation. <laughs> there you go. So, I mean, it, mono red is a permanent 20% of best of one <laughs> arena meta just by default or the, by the regular play queue because people just want to get their wins. That There's 20%. Team reclamation is never that popular, even when it's good. So maybe we're talking thir- between 30 and 40%. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's it's definitely like a majority in my mind. And I'm just, I would be interested to actually see the numbers to see what percentage of players are, you know, rocking the companion versus not. But it does feel like more often than not these days to me. So let's get started with this then. I guess we'll just, we'll go down the companions and just discuss the decks that they're appearing in. And one of the ones that I'm most interested to talk about uh, and let's get started off with is Yorian. Just because I feel like this is a companion which has been steadily growing in market share, so to speak. I think people initially looked at this card and thought, 80 card decks, that sounds like garbage. But here we are, like more and more people are playing Yorian and, and some players and some really established players are actually thinking that Yorian might be the best of all the companions and not just in standard. But let's talk about standard for a moment. What have you been thinking about these Yorian decks? There are very few decks that I don't want to put Yorian in because the the play style of this card, blinking various things from Omens and Elspeth Conqueror's Death and Planeswalkers, um, to right up to Agent of Treachery, like that speaks that is my style. You know, I, I am much more of a control mage and a value grinder than I am an explosive combo or aggro player. So almost every deck I make now is becoming a, a Yorian deck. And I did my deck doctor stream on Thursday where other people bring me lists and then I advise them on changes I would make. And it became a meme so much so they want me to devote an emote slot on my channel to it that I was just turning every deck into a Yorian deck <laughs> just again and again and again. If you are playing a deck and it is in the colors white, blue, or both, and you don't have a companion, then it almost feels like you're doing yourself a disservice by not going to 80 cards to play Yorian. Because there's probably most of your deck is built around getting ahead or gaining value in some way. Nearly all these cards in these colors, white and blue, there has to be something that produces value on the battlefield, from a Risen Reef to an Elspeth Conqueror's Death. And card quality and standard, I don't think has been this high ever. I don't think I can remember a time where there were this many printed playable spells in across all color combinations. With white, white was kind of lacking in that department, but definitely you can make you could make 100-card standard decks right now in, like, blue and green, just as an example, pretty easily, with no sacrifice of quality, in my opinion. Which I think that you proved pretty decisively in your early access stream. When you were, what, Now, tell me, what size of deck were you playing in that monster tower deck that you were playing for Agoria? 
Oh, okay. This is gonna you're gonna derail the cast for a minute. Um, <laughs> I was playing 250 card Simic. Is that the is that the max that Arena lets you play? By the way, it is okay. <laughs> uh, with and I'm even gonna mention a few things. If you have a companion, you have to go down to a 249 card deck. Oh, if tough. you have. You can't have a sideboard, so like your Fae of Wishes doesn't work if you have 250 cards. Ah, interesting. Like that's just, it's the most you're allowed to put in circulation in, in from your side of the table. And I, I, I was, I, I've made a kind of a habit of it just to establish every now and then to, and let people know how good some color combinations are. You can run this 250 card Simic deck and it does, it feels, it feels like a perfectly serviceable standard deck way too often. Like, way too often. Yeah, I mean, I saw you crushing with it. I mean, I'm sure you had issues, but, like, you know, it seemed like you were doing just fine. Yeah, and you never have to, like, worry about decking yourself with Krasis. It just takes the it takes the tension right out of pumping your Gadwick to the max. Um, you know, these, these things, these are the quality of life improvements. And I was, I was doing that before Yorian was spoiled. So when Yorian was spoiled, I was immediately like, oh, this is easy. Um, and whereas a lot of people are like, 60 cards, I've, oh my god, I've only, I've only done 60 cards for the last like 20 years. I was, I was told when I brought my 100 card deck to the FNM standard tournament, everybody told me that it made me look like a noob. So I've only done 60 cards ever since then. And I, I don't know, 80 cards, it's, it's a quality loss. It, it's not a quality loss. I would say. I would say it's definitely a consistency loss, and you should build against that. So, uh, yeah, Yorion, though, is amazing, and if your deck doesn't have a companion, you should consider a Yorion version. I saw a Yorion version of Teamer Reclamation, which was one of the decks that doesn't traditionally run a companion. It's also a deck that would make you nervous because it really wants certain cards together, like Wilderness Reclamation and Expansion Explosion. But when the cards you add are somewhere between 8 and 10 Scrylands and somewhere between 8 and 10 Cantrips, like the Omen of the Sea, which you blink with your Yorian, it doesn't feel like you lose the consistency the way you think you should. Yeah, that's a good point. I do think it's also an important point you raise that there are actually archetypes that do worry about decking. Whenever I was playing Simic X decks in the previous format, um, I actually came up against this quite a lot, especially with Saltai. I was playing this, you know, just like a fairly standard Saltai-ish build. And I, I frequently decked myself just resolving four crises over the course of a game or, you know, bringing my Oro back and just drawing so many more cards with my Oro and stuff like that. And so, of course, especially if you run up against an opponent with Garuda, you know, I mean, like a grindy match against Garuda, you could easily deck yourself, right? So yeah, I, I, I think that with a lot of these uh, Simic strategies especially, if your deck is already built around drawing a million cards, then that 80 card cap could actually end up being a boon for you. So I, I think one of the interesting questions that Yorian asks is how much are you willing to sacrifice just to get like a 4-5 flyer that you can cast anytime you want every game? How much do you actually lose with the deck building restriction versus how much do you gain there? Like, do you think that that team of reclamation deck was gaining or losing in that situation? That's a really good question. I think it, I think it relates to the cost of all companions. So I'm going to zoom out and talk about all the companions, not just Yorian really quick. 
the place where this companion mechanic is potentially busted, and it's so much different from what we've dealt with before, it isn't just that you get an extra card. Like a lot of people are saying companion is like starting with an eight-card hand. That is just the baseline. Like if you are playing a creatureless deck and you throw in the one that requires all your creatures to be elementals or beasts, you know, then you have a three, two for three that you have an eighth card in your hand. It's also probably the worst card in your hand, right? But when companion is busted is when it's not just the eighth card in your hand. It's also the best freaking card in your deck because you built, you built your deck around this interaction. All right. So you get to start not just up a card on the opponent, but up literally the best card in your deck. And that is why Luris and Gairuda and Obash and Karuga are just tearing people up, is because people aren't just throwing, making their deck a companion deck. They're making the companion the deck, like the engine of the deck. So the way that you get paid for your Yorian is you make it the best card in that hand, regardless of what else is in the deck. And in Team Erec, it's not quite... That, 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 I think, is why people are hesitant on that one. That's why it's not an easy fix. Because maybe you have Omen of the Sea and Omen of the Forge, which is something people are actually running in their Yorian decks because they have Yorian to get an extra two points out of Omen of the Forge. I've been seeing more Omen of the Forge, which is kind of cool. You know, it's, it's like a very legit use case for that card in Standard now, which we weren't really seeing before. Exactly. So some of these cards, like, you know you're going to have the Yorian. You just know that. So is a Bonecrusher Giant as good as an Omen of the Forge? No, because you get a free second Omen of the Forge in a few turns. You, you, you know that's coming, as long as the opponent isn't sitting on a mystical dispute and you don't walk into it. So it's kind of... It, it, it requires a reworking of the deck. Like, I wouldn't play Team of Reclamation plus, you know, plus four opt and plus a bunch of land. I would play Team of Reclamation, and it would have Omen of the Forge, and it would have Omen of the Hunt, and it would have Omen of the Sea, so that on turn four, potentially, when you play your Yorian, you're having another explosion of resources. The opponent has to deal with your four or five flyer or get through it. And in doing so, hopefully they make themselves vulnerable to those resources combining in the form of wilderness reclamation, explosion, and you just run away with the game. So like you're designing, you're designing your deck around this epic turn that you know you will have. That is why Companion is kind of... It, it, it's weird. You get a demonic tutor every game. Like, it, your best card is in your hand. The opponent knows it. They know it's coming. So that is the part that we now have to explore about Companion, which is, what do you, knew, what do, you do when you know it's coming? Like, how do you play against it? So this is the part of metagaming that most people, I don't think, have explored yet. And when they do, I think that the interactions with Companion will get better, not worse. I think. Well, so that I'm really glad that you brought that up because people talk about the advantages of companion and they really downplay the disadvantages. But I was actually like, this is a case in point. So I was playing on the ladder the other day and I came up against a Garuda deck and I was playing um, Tima Clover, which I just play on and off because I love that deck. 
and also because I was feeling uninspired about putting together a new deck. So I looked at their Garuda and I looked at my opening hand and I thought, this is a serviceable hand, but not against Garuda. And so I mulliganed and every action I took in that game was expressly towards beating Garuda and I beat them. And if I hadn't seen that Garuda, like if, like let's say they'd been playing the same deck, but they didn't have Garuda as a companion and they just had Garuda in their opening hand. They, they just had a good hand, right? Um, I would have kept my initial hand against them and I would have lost. But because I had that face-up information before I had even drawn my first card of the game, I was actually able to angle towards a winning strategy against them. And that was a best of one game. And so that was that. I took that match because I had that information. And so I think that people, they kind of downplay the issue of that or what you'd give up when you have... A companion, but I think in some cases it, it does actually, especially with a deck that's so all in, like Garuda is. Like maybe if you have a deck that isn't so all in, then it's less of a downside. But you you do give something up by having a companion. Best of one, especially right, because this is something that if a tournament Magic player is listening to this, um, they'll probably throw a line out there about it's not real Magic and they're done with that. But for a lot of us who play best of one a lot. This was something that was almost a problem. Like, we would play a Scryland, and we'd look at a Deafening Clarion on turn one, yeah. and we'd be like, I have no idea if this is good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, do I keep the Wrath? Do I not? I, I know, I've dealt with that myself. Yeah, so in Best of One, this is actually an information leak that matters. And in Best of One, you can't afford to play a lot of narrow cards in your deck. You have to play a lot of general cards to have game against most of the field. But it's not about... Uh, it's, it's not so much about having the perfect you know cards to sideboard into. You don't have that option. So it's all about how you play these general answers that you do have, right, in navigating a best-of-one game. And now you have this signpost. They stapled it on their forehead. It's right in your face. They may as well have exposed their decklist to you before even playing the game. And now you know how to use your cards. Now you know when you play that temple on turn one, whether Deafening Clarion goes to the top or the bottom. You know what you have to do. And that's a big deal. And I don't think, like you said, I, I think most people haven't taken the step to that level. They just look across the table at the person with the broken companion, and they're like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So not fair. Uninstall. Busted. You're like... Oh, yeah, my strategy for this match is, uh. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't consider that a, I don't consider that a gaming strategy. <laughs> but just to throw you a curveball, though, one of the things that I'm working on on the side, I have no idea if it will be any good, but I'm working on Lutri flash decks. Ooh, okay. So you can only have one of each card, right? And most people consider that too much of a downside, right? Especially for standard. But there's so many good cards for Demir Flash or Simic Flash or Saltai Flash. How do they know what to play around? That's that's a really good point. Do you play around Quench? Right. Stainful Stroke? Do you play around Negate? You know they're all in the deck. Like you're probably going to be playing one of each counter spell, right? There's a lot of them. Yeah. Just imagine trying to trying to map out the possibilities with a Lutri exposed. It's one of the weird <laughs> it's one of these weird cards that it gives you information, but it's not the information that you can make your plays around because it actually is information that probably tilts you more. Well, and with a Lutri in play, uh, uh, you know, the possibility of having a Lutri in play, it does bring you a little bit more closer to Brawl. Like, for example, I was playing a lot of Brawl um, when the pandemic started because 
I just, you know, needed more magic to play during my time. And I actually discovered that like a lot of Brawl decks are still very consistent. The card quality is still very high and having that Brawl commander really helps to smooth things out. And so, yeah, I definitely think a deck like Lutri could still be something worth considering. And I do, I love that curveball aspect. And it's one of the things that makes Brawl difficult, right? Is that even if you know your opponent's commander, you know, like you, you have no idea what's going to be in their hand. You know, it's like when you play against Mono Red, you're like, okay, they're almost certainly going to have a one drop creature of some kind. They're almost certainly going to draw into their Tarbrand. They're almost certainly, you know, just because I took their Embercleave out of their hand doesn't mean they're not going to draw another one, right? So it's very, very predictable play patterns. Whereas you're right, like with, with a, a singleton deck, your opponent's just going to have no idea. I love it. That's really exciting. Yep, we we did it. We broke it. Go out there, everybody. <laughs> broke it. Everybody, just mess with their minds. Who cares if you win the game or not? It's all about the the mental dominance asserted. You know, I've I've just come up with my next challenge mode. It's going to be Yorian Singleton deck. Boom! Let's oh, go. <laughs> next level. But yeah, um, we started this with Yorian. It's so easy to get off topic, but I love. Yorian a lot. What are you doing with Yorian? So, okay, yeah, Yorian, I have to admit, I have not played a lot of Yorian myself. So here's what I'm interested with with Yorian, because there are a number of different archetypes that you can cover with this dude. I think one of the first that we started to see was just like the blue-white blink deck reimagined with Yorian in it. And so that deck's fairly linear. You're playing your Prince Charmings, your uh, charming prince i guess you're playing your you know you're playing teferi because you always did you're playing thassa you're playing agent etc and so in that deck it's basically just like you were saying you just you throw in a little bit more of everything you you toss in your yorian and you're off to the races but then you know people started quickly experimenting with like bant yorian which is again it's basically like it's basically like maybe if you pre-boarded your bant deck a little bit or if you just like go down the bant list and you just put in far off of everything that you couldn't play far off so you're like yeah i guess i'm gonna play far off tamio now i guess i'm gonna you know run my complete play set of arboreal grazer if i wasn't before stuff like that and then and then you just play yorian as your top end on that deck as well um and it you know if you can probably imagine that having yorian come down and reset one of your planeswalkers and one of your elspeth conquers deaths and and who knows maybe even some other spicy thing you have out like a cavalier of thorns or something or your um uh, risen reef that's pretty busted right like that's a good turn if you're able to to do that at any point in a game of magic so you know i i think like it's definitely an easy inclusion in decks like that and i think if i were playing either of those decks i would probably just like immediately angle towards the yorian build because it seems stronger to me one of the things that I'm most curious about is the these four-color Yorian decks that we're starting to see. Like, people are playing these Fires decks that play Yorian, and I'm super, super interested in this, so I would probably be moving in this direction if I were going to be doing a Yorian build. Have you played with or against one of these decks? Yes, I've played with these. Um, and uh, again, you're pretty... A lot of them are mostly like omened up, you know. You've got plenty of omens so that your your Yorian gets the value. But when you drop Yorian as, say, your second spell on a fire's turn, you get a free spell. 
Then you get the free Yorian, and then you exile the fires along with the omens. Then you get your mana, and you still have a spell you can cast because fires is gone, and it's coming back next turn. So it makes the, the, the turn five fires turn just got even bigger. <laughs> that is pretty busted. Now, one of the things that, one of the more tricky things I've seen people do with Yorian, um, which is good to think about, is people will do these interesting things like they'll, like, if they have a, a Yorian already out, they'll play a Charming Prince blinking the Yorian. And what, what you can start to do is, like, you have these blink loops that will actually exi- actually exile stuff, like, not only on your turn, but on your opponent's turn as well. And so some people will actually use a Yorian to like defensively protect maybe their fires of invention during their opponent's turn. So the opponent can't Elspeth conquers death it, or so the opponent can't Teferi it, something like that. And I just think that like that's that's the kind of next level play which you've got to start thinking about when you run a card like Yorian, because you can do a lot more than just you know, get more value out of your stuff. Like you, you start to create these kind of rotating doors of the permanence that you do and don't have in play. And you can use that to your strategic advantage as well, which I think is just one of the utterly insane aspects of playing a card like Yorian. Yeah, the the Charming Prince loops in particular can become really messy really fast if the, the opponent can't can't conjure up a shock you know what i yeah. mean they gotta, <laughs> yeah. they gotta stop that and then they still have to beat the yorian it's an, it's not a bad creature on its own this is why playing mono red which has been kind of a scourge for a while like it's, it's just this fun police but now it's just so far behind because people have these free giant monsters that they have to deal with that create a ton of value anyway yeah mono red more than ever just can't let people live that long or they just get ground away so quickly because now everybody has access to bodies it used to be really hard to put a body in front of mono red or you're playing this mopey creature in your deck well not anymore you get it for free in your opening hand every time yeah which which i think that brings me around to laris let's talk about laris this has been kind of a nightmare matchup for the mono red i think for that reason so i want to talk about that let's just put a cap on the yorian decks though this is my inclination is that if you were a gamer who liked playing bant in the last format um if you liked these blinky slower more accruing late game advantage compounding advantage kind of decks in the previous format then i think that yorian is probably for you i think if you're the kind of gamer who wants to turn things sideways and end a game you know at with any amount of speed then yorian's probably not for you it's not not that the deck can't be explosive but it's definitely a late game kind of a deck Maybe we can get to it towards the end, but I do feel like the companions came with personalities hidden within them, and it's it's being revealed. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, Yorian's like that person who sleeps until one, <laughs> you know? Yep, he's got time. He makes his coffee, he smokes a cigarette, he doesn't even turn on the news until 2 p.m. So in comparison with that, Laris is the kind of dude who's like, he, he just took an espresso nap. So <laughs> Laris doesn't even hang out with people who, who don't wake up at 5 a.m. So yeah, let's talk about some of these Laris decks. Now, I think the first and most notable example we saw was, was from everyone's favorite number one mythic competitor, Crokies. He put together this Rakdos Laris sacrifice deck. 
which I thought was, you know, it, it was a pretty cool deck. I got to say, I'm pretty spicy. And it also showcased a number of new cards in the format. Namely, we've got Whisper Squad, the Scorpion, two most notable examples. And it was also playing the, um, I forgot the name of that card that returns stuff call of the death dweller there you go call the death dweller exactly so it was making good use of of that the impression i get these days is that that version of the deck is a little bit deprecated now and that people have moved on to some newer builds but we've we've actually seen like there's an incredible variety in the Laris decks i so just in the last couple of days on the ladder i've run into mono black Luris, various different iterations on the black red sacrifice Luris. I've run into some Ozov Luris decks, which are, you know, like some running a Johnny's Pride Mate, for example. I've run into more combo y versions built around Hateful Eidolon and just trying to get like a bunch of enchantments in play and recur enchantments and accrue advantage that way. I've run into these Luris decks playing all that glitters and just trying to get the critical amount of enchantments down on a flyer and then just kill you that way so uh, there's just like so much going on with this card do you have a sense of what are some of the strongest archetypes of laris in standard at the moment i think so I want to talk about the history on this card, and I I said that I feel like this, like this standard format is moving in a predictable pattern. It's just not the pattern that people maybe recognize as easily. It's been really normal when a set is new that the mono red aggro beatdown deck just takes over and for a week or two, and just the most aggressive possible streamlined deck beats all of the cool brews. Like that is that was almost normal magic for several years and now in this format we saw a companion show up that wasn't red all right it's black and it's white and it forced the streamline the streamlined deck building approach where all your permanents cost two or less and it said in exchange for that we're going to make it possible for you to grind we're going to give you this body that creates card advantage and lets you play a permanent from the graveyard and Early innovators like Crokies were sharp enough to say that's worth it because a lot of people were like, I would never cut Mayhem Devil. Would it be worth it to cut Midnight Reaper from the Sacrifice deck? Rakdos was an established deck, all right? Totally established. But what happened is Crokies said, I am going to use Luris. I am going to take out those cards. And to replace them, I'm going to add these very efficient, cheap threats that like make the deck even lower to the ground, Whisper Squad and Serrated Scorpion. And this deck was amazing through Croxa and Serrated Scorpion and Cauldron Familiar at creating damage from outside the red zone. So if you didn't have a ton of incidental life gain to offset the life loss or an extremely quick clock, this deck just drained you out constantly. And I think that it's a perfect example of what you want to be doing early in a format. Damage that's hard to stop. I mean, it's not just aggro beatdown. What makes Mono Red win all those games early in formats is its damage that is hard to stop. It can go straight to the dome. And this is a straight-to-the-dome deck. It's just mostly black. So uh, that was pretty normal. Since then, there have been interesting innovation on the Luris side, right? We've seen the black-white version that won the Lotus Box tournament, which is kind of the first big-ish tournament for this format. And that went a little deeper. It was grindier. 
It had Fiend Artisan, which was just becoming this massive body uh, paired with Luris. So that was pretty cool. And now we're in a place where people are saying, if Luris is super streamlined and low to the ground, the weakness of that deck is they don't have a lot of powerful cards. Often resolving something that was four mana or more, they can't claim it. They don't have good ways to kill it. If it could end the game quickly, they were in trouble. So people are going a little bit bigger, and even Rakdos now is running the Obosh thing, the Obosh companion, to try to get more damage in and be more explosive. So what's left for Luris is, well, super low to the ground, get your damage in, the Rakdos build, try to grind it out, gain some life. And I, I don't know. I don't think the Orzov build... Uh, with the Fiend Artisan is going to be as good because that was mainly there to offset the Rakdos one. But then now the All That Glitters, like Enchantment version, that's a very explosive, powerful deck. It is, like many good explosive, powerful decks at this point, a little glass cannon, so it's going to struggle. I want to know, have you seen the Luris Jeskai Cycling deck? No, <laughs> no, I haven't. It sounds ridiculous. I think this is coming. I think this one's coming up because like cycling, they don't even have to cast their spells. All their permanents are just these little one mana cyclers and there's Zenith Flare to go to the dome and there's Ominous Seas. But I think this is the next deck on the rise. I'm, I saw it on Twitter. I don't know how to credit the source. I don't remember exactly where it was, but I didn't even realize it was a Luris deck. I looked at it. I was like, cute meme. And it was like, I'm downloading it. And I'm, then I'm looking in the sideboard. I'm like, wait, there's a Luris in the sideboard. Do they just run this card? And it's like, oh yeah, they do. <laughs> you can just run Luris in this deck. It has white mana. It Its permanence cost two or less. And it can be this little mid-game burst of card advantage if your A plan isn't working. So, it, you know, I'm curious to see where that goes. But Luris is getting overpowered right now in the meta. Everybody's trying to go bigger than Luris now. And people have figured out that Graft Digger's Cage is kind of a nightmare for that deck, and they figured out how to play against the Luris turn, which is a big deal. They're running more Exile than they used to. They're figuring out how to keep the Oven from killing them. They're running Incidental Life Gain. Almost every deck that wants to go past turn four needs it. So I think that Luris is going to be in the place that aggro usually is. The decks adjust. They figure out how to beat it. And now it it just kind of lurks. It waits for everybody to forget how to beat it. Right, yeah, maybe to like maybe it waits for the format to become a little too big and a little too clunky, and then it just comes out of nowhere to take down a tournament. Yes, when 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 the top eight is like eight different Yorion decks. Yeah. <laughs> slogging it out. Yeah. Loris's <laughs> time has returned. Exactly. And I you know, I, for one, am really thankful to see Luris in Standard. So far, I think it's, it has a very balanced power level. Um, I think that the cost restriction is real, and I think that it does what it was intended to do with that card, which is kind of keep it in check from, from becoming too busted. So I'm definitely a fan of Luris and Standard. Can we ban something from everything but standard? Is there a precedent for just being like standard only? <laughs> yeah, we should release like a standard masters set where the cards are only legal and standard. <laughs> standard masters, that alone is a meme. Just the title is messed up. That would be amazing. I, I would be all about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know why not, to be honest. Like, I don't know why you can't just, you know, release 
Or, or just be like, hey, like there's this class of companion cards that are only playable in standard, right? I just like, I, I, I don't see any reason why that couldn't be a thing. Because I do. I, I think that these I think that these have been designed for standard, tested for standard. I think they're good in standard. I think the jury is out on whether they're OP for standard. Certainly the fact that a lot of people are running them, you know, majority of people are running them points to the fact that they are at least among the strongest cards and archetypes in the format. But, you know, I mean, like just the other week I was listening to the Arena Decklist podcast and they were saying like if I were playing a tournament this weekend, I'd probably just choose Team Arec without a, a companion. So, you know, I, I definitely don't think it's conclusive that these companion decks are the strongest decks in the format. And, you know, we're still week one. And so it's possible that we look back in two or three weeks or a month and just say, yeah, everyone went nuts with those companions. But actually these more streamlined meta decks you know without the restrictions etc are better or maybe people just decide you know garuda is a great card but not as my companion like i'm going to build a deck around garuda with it not being my companion so that's entirely possible it's it's still meta right it's still adapting to the meta the team wreck uh, i made a video also where i called team wreck the answer i was like this is the answer to the current meta and the idea behind it is like the cards that mess with Team Reclamation can't be played. There were main deck Aether Gusts everywhere until Luris made that practically, made it tremendously impractical because it doesn't hit most of their cards. And even if it does, they're only two mana. Who cares, right? So all the main deck Aether Gusts go away. Suddenly, well, and, nobody's interacting with Explosion anymore. Yeah, and, and that's especially true because another one of the companions, Karuga, also takes the Aether Gusts out of the main deck as well. So multiple companions are kind of hating that card out, which is kind of cool, really, when you think about it. It's like, um, you know, rather than, like, take any kind of ham-handed approach to, to decreasing the effectiveness of that card, just shift the meta in a way that, that kind of hates it out. I think that that's really cool. Right, and you back up the Arena Deckless podcast. You mentioned them. You back them up one week, and I believe they said that Aethergust is the best card in Mm -hmm. Ikoria, (laughs) right? Because you're looking at all these expensive monsters, and you're looking at all these expensive ultimatums. But what them, you know, kind of taking advantage of the Aethergust now even being played almost a week later shows that, yes, you you look at things from a big-picture standpoint, and it makes the metagame flow, and then you adapt to the flow, Yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Now, I am curious to talk about these archetypes built around a, a companion which is actually quite weak to the Aether Gust, which is Obosh. So you were starting to talk about Obosh a little while ago. And I think, you know, one of the cool things about Obosh is that you can return to running some of these kind of more powerful cards in the Sacrifice archetypes, mainly uh, Mayhem Devil and Woe Strider. And so what do you think about these Obosh decks? Because I, I think that this has been like an evolution of the companion sacrifice deck is that people were running Loris and then some people were maybe trying to go, I don't know if it's just bigger or just like a different angle by trying to run Obosh instead. Do you have a sense of how strong these Obosh decks are? They are very, they are very strong in a slugfest. And so what I mean by that is if there is time on both sides of the battlefield to get your pieces in place and nobody's particularly... Actually, the Obosh deck is pretty good against interaction. I was going to say if nobody's going to interact with you, but that's incorrect. The problem 
with interacting with the Obosh deck is their cards are individually powerful and synergistic, so you can't just let them have them. You can't just let them sit there with a Cat Oven Mayhem Devil holding your Aether Gust for the Obosh. They'll just slowly pick you apart and never commit the Obosh, right? Um, whereas with Loris, there's a bunch of tiny cards, and if you can deal with those tiny cards efficiently and not let the Cat Oven beat you on its own, then you can just play around the Loris. You can just always be prepared for that Luris. So the decks that figure out how to answer Luris are, you know, answering these small threats and then playing against the companion. Whereas against Obosh, you can't just afford to wait for the companion and interact with that. Their cards are a lot better. They have a lot more three drops, usually 12 to 14 three drops, and they make those one drops that they play so much stronger. A lot of them are also playing Knight of the Ebon Legion and Gutter Bones, which are cards that Luris got away from because they weren't as synergistic. These cards are more individually, they pack a bit more punch. So you can't just chill. You can't chill and play around with your game plan. These will, these cards will beat you straight up. So it's almost like Rakdos midrange versus Rakdos aggro but it's still aggressive enough that you have to respect it. And it's much better against the decks that are prepared for Luris. So it's part of the cycle. When everybody prepared for the smaller threats and shutting down the graveyard, we move to Obosh, where the graveyard isn't absolutely essential to what we do, and our threats are stronger, so that you can't just wait for the companion. But if you do flinch, that companion is going to wreck you. Well, and, you know, I think one of the things that appeals to me about this particular Obosh deck is that it does give you access to those three drops again. And this has been one of my problems. Like, whenever I've sat down and tried to build a black-based sacrifice deck in Standard, the the biggest issue of the deck is always which threes do I play, right? And it's like, okay, we know that Mayhem Devil's getting the play because that card's just... The, it's it's the best three drop in the archetype. But when you look down the list of the other threes, it's like, do I play Woe Strider? Do I play Ayara? Do I play Judith and try to go for a slightly different angle? I mean, you know, do I play the Midnight Reaper to try to recoup some card advantage? If I had my way, I would just run far offs of all of those cards in my deck. But obviously that deck would be terrible. But I think that that's one of the main reasons to play Obosh is that you get these strong three drops back and those cards can really, they can just really turn the tide of the game. So if I had to choose, maybe it's just because I'm a little more old school or maybe it's because I personally think that Mayhem Devil is just still one of the strongest cards in Standard and always has been. But I would I would definitely be running an Obosh deck over a Laris deck if my goal was to do this sacrifice-y kind of thing. Well, when you sit down for the mirror, and they reveal a Luris, and you reveal an Obosh, you know they don't have Mayhem Devil in their sacrifice deck, and you have four in yours. That's going to feel pretty good. <laughs> I think so, yeah. I, I think so. And I also just like the idea that so their late game is something like bringing down their Luris and trying to recur. You know, maybe if, if they're doing their best, living their best life it's something like recurring a croxa and then slamming a croxa right but your late game looks something like resolve my obosh i don't even know if my opponent has an answer to my obosh and now every mayhem devil trigger is doing two damage and so i i, I don't know i feel like this is one of those decks where if you resolve your obosh 
you don't even need to untap with it. Just like the turn that you slam Obosh, the game might be over right then. So, you know, I, I kind of, I think that's it. I feel like if you can survive until turn five or six in the mirror, you probably win. Uh, if your Laris opponent's able to accrue too much advantage before then, then maybe you can't catch up. Those serrated scorpions are a big deal. That life gain, like that life gain is the underrated part of that card, I feel like. I was talking about how decks needed incidental life gain, and these black aggressive sacrifice decks just have it. You know, in this in this innocent looking little little uh it's not an insect, right? Scorpions have too many legs. It's a it's an arachnid. Yeah. This innocent little poisonous arachnid. Like the life gain from that thing. How do you gain life from a scorpion? Like if I eat a scorpion, do I get healthier? <laughs> Well, I think it's that if you are the scorpion, you're somehow sucking the opponent's soul out of their body with your sting. I, you know, I, I don't that quite know. That doesn't make any sense to me like. either. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. I just think that it's cool that these two companions are kind of vying for a similar slice of the pie and that you get to choose. I mean, I'm looking at a version of the Obosh deck made by Andre Strasky in which he's actually running to Laris main deck in his Obosh companion deck. So I think that's a cool thing that you can do. I mean, don't, don't forget that you can run these companions main deck. Yeah, that is one of the, one of the interesting things of doing it. Laris is probably one of those that is on the closest like cusp of, can you play it main deck? And you can, if you have enough quality things to recur. And yeah, that Strasky list, like, it's it's like mono black. It doesn't even feel like mono black because you've got a Rakdos hybrid commander and you've got the black white Luris in your deck, and it's so strange. Yeah, totally. But then you and then you just randomly get housed by like a stone coil serpent or something. <laughs> Which, by the way, that card's definitely seeing probably about as much play as it ever has in standard at the moment. And um Let's just let's just give a little like public service announcement on Stone Coil Serpent, right? So here are some of the things that Stone Coil Serpent can't get hit by. Mayhem Devil, Teferi. It can block your Obosh all day long. It can block a number of threats all day long, including Oro. It can block a Hydroid Crisis. Now you still take the trample damage, which is kind of annoying. Yeah, I mean, it's just like this thing has protection from all kinds of stuff. You can't hit it with like a Bedevil. There's, there's various other removal spells that don't hit it it costs zero mana so you can't hit it with an elspeth conquers death so it's it can be a pretty hard threat to kill and another service announcement with this thing is it has reach and so i think most people have they've cottoned onto this by now but just just to remember it's almost an etb kill target flying creature on opponent controls when you play it because (laughs) they just always crash right into it uh, if if you are in gold, silver, or bronze, it's kind of free value to play Stone Coil Serpent. Somebody had two say two of the octopus, two C Dasher octopuses on their Spectral Sailor crashed right Ooh, into the three no. Stone Coil Serpent. <laughs> oh, uh, it hurts! Oh. It hurts. And one of the benefits of running reaches in your deck is even if people remember it ninety nine percent of the time, like there's always that brain fart moment, right? So it's like. I still have stupid times when I, you know, when I cast my growth spiral into my opponent's Nosset. Or, you know, where, whether I, I think I have some kind of a win on the board, but I don't, because lo and behold, they had that Teferi, right? So even if, even if your opponent knows about it, they might just lapse. And so, 
Yeah, it's uh, and another PSA, another creature that you're probably going to start seeing more of in standard that also has reach is Gemraiser. So I definitely wrecked an opponent in limited the other night just because they forgot that my Gemraiser had reach. So not going to lie, I just had a like I just had a check yourself moment when you said that. I almost I, I wanted to dive in with no wait does no does it does it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the thing, man. Like I almost feel like. Every standard format from now on, you're going to have to do like a little reach cheat sheet, right? Because it comes up. It comes up. Yeah, like Questing Beast. That has reach. It It has to. Questing Beast. (laughs) Whatever you think might be written on Questing Beast, it probably is. I don't attack my flyer into Questing Beast just to be cautious. Just Yeah, just 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 in case, man. (laughs) Questing Beast goes to night school, you know? He's probably picking up these skills as, as we talk. All right, well, um, we've already managed to cover an hour worth of, of dialogue here with this standard format. And I did just want to, I wanted to chat about a few other decks really quick before we peace out here. Now, um, one of the things that I've been really interested to get your take on is some of the more controlling lists in the format. And if there's one thing that has been, re- if there's one color combination that has been quite revitalized by this set, it has been Jeskai. Now, of course, a lot of people are continuing to play the Jeskai Fires deck in, you know, relatively unmodified form from the previous year, just throwing in Karuga and making a few other changes. Just throw in a casual draw three or four right when yeah, you need it. Yeah, you know. For free. Why not? Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> just invite that guy to the party. But I don't know. I've I've seen people playing various more controlling lists with Jeskai running the new Narset, running the Jeskai Ultimatum, which I think is delivering on the promise of being the most playable Ultimatum in Standard right now. And I'm curious if you have played with any of these lists and if you have any thoughts about optimal builds for them. Sure. I spent yesterday making a video with Jeskai Control, went up today on YouTube, and Sticking to my tradition, I love control decks. My YouTube features all kinds of different decks, but usually the first control deck that I love that I do each season, I just share the whole event, like everything I recorded, as opposed to the usual like one hour oh, nice. of content. Mm-hmm. So like last year, or not last year, but when Theros Beyond Death came out, my dream trawler, blue-white control deck, it was like a two and a half hour video. The, the, this um, this Jeskai deck checks in at just about 90 minutes, just about a 90 minute video of Jeskai control shenanigans. The thoughts on the deck though is it's really... I'm glad that the Rakdos Lurus deck is moving away because that matchup was freaking tough. Like, especially best of one, right? Um, but Graft Digger's Cage was probably your weapon against them. The the damage that just keeps on coming from Witch's Oven and the Scorpion was such a pain. And that's when you learn to put a lot more value on the new Narset, Narset of the Sweet Chin Music, because... Uh, the two life on the plus is something that you just write off when you read the card, but it's something that's much more important in, in practice, especially in best of one. Also, it's pretty easy to splash that into an almost blue-white control list if you want to stick to blue-white control. You can run interplanar beacon, get even more life gain out of it, give yourself even more distance from the aggressive decks. And that card... Narset of the Sweet Chin Music is a very interesting card. It doesn't seem like much, but it ultimates really quickly. And the ultimate doesn't seem like much, but it will eventually kill someone. 
and just a win con that can't be interacted with is an is a win con you know is is long once you once you have an emblem from that thing all you have to concern yourself with is how to let the game take longer and not deck yourself and lo and behold yorion has come to make it even less likely that we deck ourselves so uh that is glorious and uh so i really like yorion in these decks i love the omens the omen yorion turn especially if you can set it up with an elspeth conqueror's death is it's you're always playing control for that turn the corner moment and now you know exactly where it's going to be you just have to figure out how many pieces you can set up before you get there without dying and that is really exciting. Um, against aggro decks, against Luris decks, against mono red, I end up doing a lot of turn fours where I play the Narset. And I could minus the Narset. I could discard like an Elspeth Conqueror's Death or an Omen, and I could kill one of their creatures. I end up just plussing it, gain two life, have five loyalty. Are they going to attack it? Are they going to attack me? You know, I, I know I'm going to get another turn. And if they go after the Narset, that's fine. But it's just pushing this Yorian turn further and further forward because the more time i have before my yorian turn the bigger it will be and the more it will bury them and it is uh it is a wonderful experience um so just the way that that the 80 card deck size you get to have more answers in your main deck i still play one or two fey of wishes like another guest of the podcast which one was it though was it danny west who always plays yeah fey of wishes? I, I think it was danny west who was a yes. fan of the fey yep 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 just like like uh mr west I also want two or three phases of wishes so that even with 80 cards, I also have access to the sweet sideboard card. I'm, I mean, the combo of Fey plus Graftigger's Cage is just so juicy. You know, it's like turn five being able to just bust that out. Or like, you know, let's let's say your mana screwed and you have a Narset in play. You can still do that on turn, on turn five if you only have four mana. So, you know, that's just like a, a cool... These, these are like the little cool edge cases that you pick up. Yeah, and especially as a best of one gamer, I'm also a fan of the Fae of Wishes. I just, I think that that card has been underrated during its entire tenure in Standard. Yeah, because it's a best of one, like in best of one, is it's at its best. You know, in best of three, it's much more difficult. You have to give up sideboard space. The cost is tremendous. In best of one, it is much closer to a free card. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just, you know, a 1-4 blocker, it turns out, is pretty good against a lot of these low-curve aggro decks as well. Uh, yeah, you wanted, um, you wanted some, me to have some insight into playing the Jeskai control. If your opponent might have creatures in their deck, which there's usually a good sign, there's a, usually a companion over there that gives you an idea of what they have in their deck, just play the darn 1-4. Having the 1-4 out there, like there are so many creatures with haste, right? And there's planeswalkers of their own, like Teferi, that go down to one loyalty when they interact and use their ability. Just having a 1-4 to either block for your Teferi or Narset or attack the opponents changes so many things in a control-ish mirror. And that's not even bringing up like if your opponent's aggressive or might become aggressive or, you know, a Legion war boss on three was going to come down and pick off your Teferi. Don't be the greedy person who has the Fey of Wishes in their hand at that point. Be the person with the Fey on the field that laughs at the war boss. Absolutely. Yeah, Fey is... And and the cool thing about Fey is, like, worst comes to worst, you can always buy it back in the mid-game if it's still around. 
And if it's not still around, that's probably because it did an important job of keeping you alive into the mid game. And I totally agree. You know, again, playing this, the teamer adventure deck, I so often had a turn where I would go turn one innkeeper into turn two fey of wishes. And apart from being card advantage, you've just got, you've curved out creature wise and against a Teferi deck, that's a, it's a problem because yeah, now they can't just slam their Teferi and basically take all of your creature tempo away. They can't just slam a turn three Nos at three and expect for it to stick around, stuff like that. Yeah, just like having, having that early creature presence especially in a control deck which isn't accustomed to having access to that can be really important it can also do things like protect your own teferi on turn three or it could protect your own narset on turn four so yeah fey of wishes i'm i'm a big buyer on this card i just think that it has so you know fey of wishes blocks for days man like fey of wishes blocks a brazen borrower and kills it and lives to tell the tale. So you uh, you brought up Teamer Adventures twice now, so now I have to get to it. Do you, are you playing Song of Creation? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the real question. I am not. I did some thinking about this, and I've also participated in some discussions with, you know, with Aaron Gertler himself on the topic of Song of Creation. And I think the consensus has been that it doesn't belong in the Teamer Adventures deck. I think nine times out of 10, just resolving uh, Escape to the Wilds is a better thing to be doing in that deck. So here are some of the problems with Song. And I think it's one of, these are some of the problems in general why we haven't really been seeing Song in Standard is that it's a particular combination of vulnerable to a lot of things. And also it's harder than it might seem to actually make it pay off for you. So for starters, Song gets hit by everything. It gets hit by your enchantment removal. It gets hit by mystical dispute. It does get hit by ether gust. So it's just like one of the most interactable enchantments there exists. And the other problem is um, there are just some really disastrous scenarios that can happen with song. Like for example, if you do resolve your song and you discard your hand at end step, and then your opponent bounces it back to your hand or deals with it in some other way, then you've just, you've gone down a lot of cards. I also think that in this Teamer Adventure deck, it can seem like a good combo with the deck because you are frequently playing empty-handed with a lot of your value in the exile zone and the adventure zone in that deck. But again, like what that deck really wants to do in, in the late game is just draw that escape to the wilds off the top and just kind of exile a bunch of cards and have access to all of them. And to and the toolboxy nature of actually being able to see and have the choices to make about what you want to cast versus just having to chain your spells. Because a lot of times what will happen is in the late game, you'll have a lot of mana, you'll have a lot of stuff in exile, and you have to carefully sequence your turn to decide like what is actually going to generate me the value that I need to like get to the next turn and to overwhelm my opponent. And so if you're playing off the top of your deck with a card like Song of Creation, it actually doesn't give you as many options as if you're able to just like take a look at five new cards and make a decision about what you want to play. So I, I think it's a cool thing to think about, but I just don't think that we've seen the Song of Creation deck in Standard yet, and I, I don't really know what to do with it. Have you had any thoughts about that? Everything you said is totally like rational, and Aaron Gertler is the freaking genius of the deck, so you know, you're 100% right, but felt like a bucket of cold water, so I'm going to take it back to dream not letting your memes be dreams 
And I'm going to say your your teamer your teamer adventure deck doesn't have a companion, does it? No. Huh. Does interesting. Not. Have you considered 80 card teamer adventures with Yorion? With Yorion? You know to- what's funny? I I was just literally thinking that in the middle of this podcast. I was like in the back of my mind, I was like Damn, Yorian might be good in the adventure deck. Well, here's the thing. It's not really good to blink your adventure cards. You don't they don't have ETBs, right? You don't get to rebuy them. But but you can say set this up with a Fey of Wishes so that you have this big turn where you play the song and you draw a bunch of cards and you play the Yorian and you blink oh, and you the blink song. <laughs> so the end step trigger doesn't happen. And then when it returns, if you use your Fae of Wishes and set it up, you have your Mystic Repeal to just put the song on the bottom of your library. So you draw your 10 cards, you play your extra land, you play your Yurion, and now it's your turn. Uh, this is a combo only worthy of you, my friend. <laughs> Thanks. I think maybe. Was that an insult? <laughs> your magnum opus, my friend, is going to be Song of Creation, I do believe. Ah, man. That... But yeah, that 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 card. There's actually a lot to do with that card, but we'll see. We'll see about the magnum opus. I I feel like there is that card is playing with fire. If you if you are playing a sixty card song of creation deck, you have known what it is to deck. You, oh, uh, indeed. Oh yeah, way too easy. So just as an example of the danger of that card, I again limited. I was playing Ikaria limited, and I drafted a deck with that card. And no joke, I played nine games. I went six and three with that deck in in the best of one. I played nine games with the deck, and I never cast it, and it was because it was never the right card to cast. Like, I was look at my hand, and I'd have 15 cards left in my deck into a stable board, and I'd be like, I literally cannot cast this spell. Like, it's going to lose me the game. So I feel like if you're going to play Song of Creation in Standard, you're probably either on the self-mill plan playing a Thassa's Oracle, or, I don't know, maybe you're running Clear the Mind or something. I- I'm curious. I'm very, very curious to see where that card ends up. Another card that I've been experimenting with in Standard, which has not had favorable results so far, has been Titan's Nest. Now, this is a card where I'm still not convinced that it's not going to have some good application at some point, especially if Fires gets banned, for example. Who knows whether that's going to happen or not. <laughs> what a world. But, like, what a world that would be. I know, right? Indeed. You know, it's been really dominating the Mata game, so I wonder if eventually some corrective action might get taken. So I've actually, shout out to one of my Discord members, Wraith Zero. He and I have been like in this ongoing dialogue about how we could possibly break Titan's Nest. I wouldn't say that the initial results have been strong, mostly because it's just not as broken as any of the other broken mana engines in Standard. So it's kind of like, why would you be running Titan's Nest when you could just be running Fires or Reclamation instead? But I I haven't given up on it. So I had this initial build of the deck, which was something like, uh, I was relying on amassing and using Brokos to try to just like, both make my expensive amass spells like commence the end game cheaper, but then also to try to get Brokos into the yard and then uh, mutate it onto these amass creatures to get like a big, you know, 12-12 trampler into play, which is probably something that would have been fine to try to do in like Shadows over Innistrad standard, but which in what is essentially still Eldraine standard, uh, it's just not. 
yeah, bro, you can play that for free with fires. What what's the matter with you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So have you tried? Uh, have you tried Sir Conrad? I you know I have not tried like the combo kill Sir Conrad stuff. I know that you've built at least one Sir Conrad deck in the past. What what have your thoughts not, on that guy been? I'm not saying you'll win a lot of games. I'm saying you'll remember <laughs> the ones you win. It's all about the friends you made along the way, right? Again, so Conrad's the kind of card which, like, in the standards of your might have actually been a pretty solid game plan. But I don't know, man. Something when your opponent's just yarrying all over you or whatever, I'm just not sure that Conrad's where you need to be. I mean, we didn't talk much about Gyruda or Fires today. Gyruda's pretty much pushed out of the meta already at this point after, like, two weeks because people remembered how to mystical dispute things. And... Fires is just still the juggernaut that it is. It's like, what can you, what can you do? The turn five is going to most likely include two to three massive monsters with haste coming at your face. <laughs> it's yeah. intense. Yeah, that's that's one of those decks which is like, like you have to answer the question of how do you make up for not doing much in the early turns of the game? Well, fires has answered that question decisively. Fires is like, well, I'm going to make up for not doing much in the first three turns of the game by spending like 8, 10, 12, 15, 20 mana a turn every turn thereafter, right? So, yeah, I th- I think, I mean, not much to report. Fires is just still one of the best decks in the format. And the the results from the Magic Fest online standings of this past week have borne that out. It's like Fires has been just by far the most represented deck in the winning metagame there. So, yeah, still a strong deck. Still a deck that just consistently smashes ridiculous face. Still a deck that can just win off of a top deck like nobody's business. Yeah, I mean, if if you want to be winning at Magic, then definitely just jamming your Jeskai Fires deck with your Karuga is probably the way that you want to be going. Yep. It's not that different from other standard formats. Um, on turn five of this format, you either need to be the the Fires style deck, which has a, oh, just explodes onto the battlefield, gains a ton of value, does a ton of impressive things, or you have to make sure there is no turn five. Your deck has to be that aggressive. Or you have to have the right interaction for the powerful turn five that is coming. Those are like the three options you get. Yeah. Yeah, I think that standard right now, the question you have to be asking yourself is, are the things, do the things that I'm doing look filthy? Does my goldfish look filthy? And if the answer is no, you just, you probably just need to take that deck back to the drawing board. If you're not shaking your head on turn four or five when you're playing against Sparky and going, oh my God, this is ridiculous, your deck's just probably not handling the business if you're not feeling bad for your opponent your deck's probably not good enough i'm one of those people who loves to play good old-fashioned like regular control magic just like everyone else does you know i like to just i like to do something fun like curving my agonizing remorse into teferi into a removal spell into like some gradual end game kind of take control of the game but that's just not where magic is right now and it's not where standard is right now and you can't expect that just getting a couple of two for ones in a row 
or like just playing a busted planeswalker on any given turn of the game is going to be the thing that's actually going to get you ahead so yeah you just you need to be thinking bigger you need to be you know shooting for the bleachers I, I don't know. There's there's aspects of that that I don't like, to be honest. I do wish that there were, you know, fair strategies were a little bit more viable and standard. I do wish that there was a bit more of like a aggro mid-range thing that you could look to. I do wish that we had like a mono green stompy deck that was at least like tier 1.5 or, or tier 2. But initial results indicate that you just can't be playing that kind of old school magic these days. Maybe we just haven't gotten there in the format yet. Like like we keep on saying, people are just experimenting with some of the flashier stuff right now. And so it may be that we have some more toned down, sane, lean, streamlined, targeted decks, which don't have this massive top end, but which are just able to kind of vivisect the format. But... I, yeah, I, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical. Yeah, I'm going to give that a nah. <laughs> <laughs> but I would like for you to be right. I think this is what I really, this is what I'd really want. If I could do whatever I wanted to, you know, because there are people complaining. We hear them. We deal with, like we, I kind of understand where they're coming from. If you've played magic for the last 20 years, something about this does not feel like magic. And I think part of the thing that, broke the code almost or made this too much for some people is the fact that there is no safe space. Every format was basically invaded and this is the way it is now. So if I could do it however I wanted to do it, I'm okay with standard being this explosive flashy format to try to draw more people in. I think that we need that for magic to last, but did you notice that they didn't do the metagame shakeup event this time before Ikoria came out where they usually have the event on Arena with like the 30 banned cards, the 20 to 30 meta banned cards? You notice yeah. they didn't do that? Yeah, I think we should have a format like that. Yeah, I agree. That that would be pretty sweet. But of course, they're not going to give it to us because they'd have to ban like 60 cards. <laughs> you I mean, know? I don't know. Like, would it kill them for like a few days a week to have a format with no companions and ban the engine cards, no fires, no wilderness reclamation, no oven, you know, that, that stuff. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, they didn't do it. So I'm kind of, that kind of depressed me. I don't think many people noticed that that went away, but I think that some of us who do want to figure out how to win games with mole drifters and Baneslayer angels, uh, we, we need a place to play that style too. I agree. And I think, you know, one simple thing that they could do is just make Artisan a bit more of a thing on Arena. And it's actually interesting if you're building a new deck on Arena and you click on the drop down menu to select the format, they actually have Artisan in there as a format. It's 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 all a troll. It's a troll. Yeah, I know. Look man, at all those look at all those cool formats you can almost never play. <laughs> yeah. Look at all these unsupported formats, right? So it is. It, it kind of stings a little bit to like have it acknowledged in the client, but then not have any dedicated play mode for it. But I think that if they had like a, an artisan queue, even if it were just one, just a play queue with no ranking, no nothing, right? Um, I think that that would be super fun. And I think that it would be like a pressure valve for all of these players who, you know, whether you're like a newer player who's frustrated that you keep getting blown out by these nasty meta decks, or whether you're an experienced player who's just frustrated that you keep playing and getting blown out by these nasty meta decks, right? Um, you know, I think it would just be nice to to have some of these more casual 
options or just just something different. Maybe you just want to know what it felt like in Magic before you could generate something like five to 50 free mana on turn four in standard right it's it's like it's okay it's like do it in vintage that's fine do it in legacy maybe even do it in modern you know that that's cool like that's what we came here to do but man standard really anyway well i i think that's a good place to put a cap on this cgb it is always a pleasure having you on the show so before we go here where can people find you online and is there any content in particular that you'd like to highlight before we go Search for Covert Go Blue on YouTube. That's the easiest way to find where I post most of my content. Different deck every single day is the CGB way. I also have a weird affinity for rhymes and uh, somewhat whimsical flavor to my videos, so get used to it. And then on Twitch, I do streams for, on Monday through Thursday from 4 to 6, although I've been going a little later, Eastern Standard Time. And those shows used to be all about me playing Magic. Lately, they're all about the viewers, uh, trying to talk to them about what, how I could help them improve their decks, playing viewer decks, talking to viewers about deck ideas. It's, it's trying to be a different kind of Twitch show because everybody else on Twitch is sort of like, here I am playing Magic, and I'm trying to be a little more interactive, but come by, let me know what you think, say hello. It's been really fun to see so many more people checking that out. It's also, uh, it's, I'm very sad to report, I... I can never be on this podcast again because I don't know if you will ever, I, I don't know if I can bring myself to put the pressure on you to outdo that intro. I just don't know <laughs> if I can do it. So this is probably my swan song. I probably can't come back after that. He's, he's just going out hot, man. <laughs> well, as many times as your interest in coming back will be as many times as I will try to outdo what has been outdone did in the past. And I think that, you know, Wizards is going to have to outdo themselves. I'll have to keep on trying to outdo myself. And I hope that you do the same out there in the universe. So thank you so much, Covert Go Blue. And uh, I will catch you soon. My money's on Arjuna before Wizards. And that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks again for joining us. You know where to find us. You know what to do. All is revealed in the show notes. And I will look forward to catching you next time. Thank you.